podcast than what's Christmas. Yeah, so the reason I wanted to get in touch was uh, yeah. just to have a, an overall chat about um, ageism because it's definitely a conversation that, that happens here and there on social media and I, I sense a sort of degree of frustration between, um, well, from people who are, say, you know, over 45 or over 50 about how they, they still have a place or don't have a place in the creative world of advertising. And I have a bit of a theory that, um, you know, the, the, the way you know, things are, it, it's, it's often complained about that it's money. And I don't think it is money because you could easily offer people a bit less money and have it still be a reasonable thing, but no one ever does that. It just seems to be, there's another reason why they don't necessarily want older people around. And I wonder if you had a bit of a take on, on what that might be. Yeah, I, I think there's, um, I'm just saying, I'm echoing back on myself. Um, uh, is that all right? I can hear you a little bit on the echo. Yeah, that's a bit. Of a Let me just turn it down a bit. Right, I've turned it down a bit. I'm not echoing now. Yeah, you're okay. not echoing. That's fine. I beg your pardon for the echoes. Um, I think the problem is, is, is the insecurity of the, um, the ECDs. They'll probably just say that just for a round figure, they're 40. The ECD is 40. The last thing he wants is somebody of 50 who remembers him or her as a junior. And they've got this new job and their swanky new title and they've they've worked very hard. They might be not horrible, but quite political. It was very important for them to be deputy creative director, then 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 ECD on COO or the fuck they call themselves now. And they don't want somebody who remembers them in almost in a past life. So they're never going to hire that person. It, it's they they think we're not going to take them. We. Uh, just, just casting myself as the talented seasoned pro, but they're not going to um, have those people there just because even though they're good, it's, it's, it's all to do with taking, being taken seriously and the title and the job and everything is what they want. Now they're not all like that. Some of them just get you in almost like, I mean, I've described it like this before, like, like an like a plasterer, old Charlie is really good with the, with the ornate cornicing. So they get you in for that sort of thing. And that, and that's good. But, that's not really a full-time job. They wouldn't, they wouldn't want you there uh, just because you press that button called insecurity. And as you say, I mean, if we take a hundred grand as a very round figure for a senior creative, just say that's what it was. And you said, yeah, a hundred grand for five days a week would be what it was, but why don't you offer them 40 grand for two? They'd probably do it for 30. And can you imagine what you'd get for that 30 grand, all that wisdom, all that experience, uh, and they'll be quicker because they've seen and solved these problems many times before, but they won't even do that. So it's not about money. Uh, it's about insecurity. Well, I, th I think just as a sort of uh, other side to that insecurity coin, that thing is interesting is, you know, perhaps creatives of that age grew up thinking that um, asking difficult questions to get to a better answer is a reasonable thing to do. I feel like there's a little bit more of an atmosphere these days in ad agencies where everyone's got to be very nice to each other. And if you ask a difficult question that ends up with people having to come up with difficult answers or scrap where they've been or have a tricky question with a client or something like that, people don't want to do that. Or they don't want to do it nearly as much or, or they aren't prepared to do it nearly as much as they were back in the, the old days. So if you go, that, that thing, I think, that was just said by so-and-so strategist, I don't think that's really right. And I think here are the reasons why. People don't really want that person in meetings as much as they were prepared to No, they don't. And the other thing that happens when you get to about 50, because um, I, I think it's a real thing, something to do with your synapses, it certainly happened to me, is you don't care. 
You say what you like. I mean, I'm not saying I stand on street no, corners no, abusing yeah. people. Of course, I'd never be rude or offensive. But if I thought the strategy was rubbish, I wouldn't be rude. I would say, no, hang on, that's not right. Yeah. And, I, I mean, I had this in an agency. <laughs> oh, I wish I could name the person. I'll, I'll name her off the air. Uh, who, who was um, a, a strategy person. And, of course, I remember as a junior. And, again, not just creatives, because I did the radio. I always got the work experience kids, um, the, they, the grad trainees, they used to have, have to come around with me and do, uh, which they loved, to be fair. Now, this girl had, had become very senior, uh, a senior strategist. And uh, again, you could see it was awkward. She was trying to be quite self-important and didn't really want me in the room. <laughs> And um, she said something like, um, so we need to unpack. I said, unpack? What do you mean? We're going on holiday. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you can explain. And I kept doing not for, in a quite affectionate way, not, not to try and undermine her. But she, she seemed to have lost any sort of humour because she, she'd worked her way up and wanted to be taken seriously. And I then discovered that two other senior teens had been in and had exactly the same problem with her. So I've, I've seen it in real life. But it's like uh, these things colliding, though. So we have this situation where I feel like jargony management speak, covering up mm. not something with bullshit, seems to be more and more prevalent these days. And if you if you are if you grow up a time when, of course, there's always been jargon and bullshit in advertising, yes. but it, it seems to be at a very high level right now. And if you spot it and point it out, then you are making people's lives harder. You're not playing the yeah. game with everyone else. It's like let's all collectively pretend that the bullshit jargon is fine, and let's you know use it and no no if you point out it's like emperor's new clothes don't yeah. do it no because uh, they don't realize it makes them look thick and you just think do you speak to your girlfriend your wife your husband like that i remember i went to a meeting once and i was uh one one of the people round the table was like running 10 minutes late so we're having a nice chat about line of duty or the football or whatever it was just as normal human beings uh, with this bloke and his name was Rob. That's not giving anything away. I can't, I can't even remember his surname. Rob was really nice. The moment the meeting started, Rob stood up and started going about silos and bucketing, bucketizing 360 solution opportunity. I mean, it was like a different language and it was almost upsetting. You think, what's happened to that nice friendly man? Why is he talking shit like this? And uh, the first time I came across it, really, it was, it was AMV. And I'm in this Guinness meeting and I, he, the client said something and I said, well, it might be better if we blah, blah, blah. And he said, I understand your challenge back. And I didn't know what he meant. What? I it sounded like I'd challenged him to a fight or, or a duel and slapped his face with a glove. I didn't know what he meant. Ch challenge? I, I, well, I haven't ch ch challenged you to, to do anything. You know? And they thought I was being funny, but I didn't understand him. This is the same people that had, um, they kept going on about, weirdly ben they kept going about ben i thought i might be talking about you they go uh, we will have to see what ben thinks and i thought oh clearly ben's the senior client or something ben <laughs> was a completely imaginary person uh who was the ideal guinness drinker ben <laughs> and ben was 32 and he lived in clapham with his girlfriend helen and and they were really talking we would have to take it back to ben and see what he thought <laughs> and i thought Again, as an older person, I couldn't take this nonsense seriously. I, I just couldn't because I think there's a simpler, clearer and more intelligent way of doing business than I understand your challenge back. We better take this to Ben, you know. <laughs> but if you're not willing to 
if you're not willing to not laugh at Ben and you're not willing to hold yeah. your nose when you hear bucketized silos and all that sort of stuff, then you will be hired less. You're not a team player. Yeah. You're not the kind of person they want around in the room. So to protect your income, do you have to just hold your nose and go, fine, let's let's talk a little bit in the show, or at least I won't, I won't outwardly suggest that I think this is all really stupid and I'll sit here and shut up and take my day rate or whatever. Um, to a point, uh, what, what I often do, A, I quite often don't know what they mean. Uh, and I do understand that there'll always be jargon and abbreviations and acronyms, and that's fine, or technical terms, like if, you know, but when you use a word, when there's already a perfectly good English word that everyone else uses in real life, unpacks a classic thing, you know, the word is explain. Are we aligned on that? Do you mean are we agreed on that? Price point. Do you mean price? What's this? A fucking <laughs> shirt point. What are you talking about? And 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 the tragedy is uh, it's a communications industry and these people are fa- failing to communicate clearly and simply. The very thing they're supposed to be able to do. Uh, madness. Absolutely. I, I know it's not just advertising, but advertising in particular should look at itself because its whole job is to convey a message clearly and simply. And they can't even do a meeting clearly and simply. And that is the uh, case. But, but, but and you're talking about a very, very basic one, you know, advertising 101 principle of how you should communicate and do advertising. And if what you're doing in the boardroom is coming up with a 48 slide deck, you know, seven slides of which describe Ben and the way he drinks Guinness yeah. and all this kind of stuff, then it's going to filter into the advertising. It's not, you know, because you're going to be talking to clients about, we remember that thing that we all agreed last week about Ben and the way he likes Guinness and blah, blah, blah. And so we put it all in and the advertising will get worse. The advertising yeah. will get worse, but it doesn't feel like there's enough people out there who understand that advertising must be memorable and must stand out and must be simple and must be blah, blah, blah. blah. All those principles seem to have gone out of the window in the service of let's have a good meeting where we've all spoken the jargon. And, and there's also not only the jar- jargon, the one that, all, and I've heard it a few times, um, let's just wait until we get consolidated feedback from the wider team. Yes. <laughs> I don't even very- like the word team. Unless you're talking about Arsenal or Chelsea, I don't know what you're talking about. You know, I take it back to my team. And, and I remember Sean Doyle saying uh, the thing that he noticed, everyone must have their say. Mm. Um, and their say isn't necessarily right. So, you know, it, it's it's that classic thing where everybody says this, uh, so you end up with something that nobody really... It was nobody's first choice of thing, um, but it's, it's no, the it's lowest everybody's, Yeah, it's, yeah. it's the consolidated one. Well, yeah. Rather than, I mean, I'm, it's going gonna, it's gonna to end up in this way, our conversation to some degree, going, you know, things are not the way they should be right now. Let's point it out and talk about it. It's going to happen. Hmm. Let, let me just, as a slightly devil's advocate situation, there's another phrase that you're always hear, devil's advocate. Um, say you, you pretend you're back at like an ad agency and you're 28 years old and yeah. you're, and you're, uh, you're, on, okay. you're on your snap, <laughs> you're on your Instagram stories and all this sort of stuff. And you know, you know everything, it's all great. Um, and then there's, you know, 48 year old, 52 year old, blah, blah, in the corner. Are you thinking positive thoughts about that person or... And here's my little, you know, theory that I'm basing on nothing. Does he remind you of your teacher or your dad? And therefore you're not immensely keen to have him or her around. That's just a theory I'm checking out. It's a theory and it's a very good one uh, because the lack of young, uh, the lack of older people in advertising is nothing new. 
Um, mm. but the world has changed in that people don't achieve as much as young as they used to. My son, for instance, is, is sort of embarking on his career. He's 25. By the time I was 25, only because I was fortunate, I was already, I'd worked at three agencies. I bought two flats, you know, mm. because we were able to do that. Um, it goes right up to things like music. If you'd have told me in the 80s or the, even the 90s that the Rolling Stones or Fleetwood Mac or Elton John would still be going and, and, and still selling. I mean, for instance, I always remember this just before the pandemic cancelled everything. Billy Joel, who is 71, uh, w- w- was playing Wembley Stadium. I thought, is that right? Did I mean Wembley Arena? Wembley Stadium. And, and so that... There's a greater emphasis in the real world on older people. And um, advertising just isn't acknowledging that or reflecting that. Um, And the other thing is, when I think of older people in advertising who are 40 or 50, you know, I'm thinking of Richard Foster, of John O'Driscoll, of Tony Cox. You know, they, they were older. They weren't as old as my dad. They were much older than me, but they weren't like my dad. For want of a better word, they were quite cool, you know. So... Advertising should have, this sounds so bad, but sort of older people who are, I mean, Hegarty's in his 70s now. He's, he's still, I've seen John in the street in, in the last couple of years. He still looks good. He still yeah. has plenty to knows say. Knows what's going on. Yeah, he knows what's going on. Uh, and, in, and because of the invention of the internet and YouTube, older people, just by the very fact that they've been alive longer, have listened to more music, seen more films, seen more plays, and they can call them up. They've got a massive internal reference library that they can call up in an instant. Uh, and that's all sort of being, being wasted. So, yeah, the, the, the people do want their turn, and I do get that. The other problem is, is I'm talking about O'Driscoll and Foster and people like that, and I, I can't speak for their personal finances, but people of that generation, um, quite deservedly so because they were brilliant, uh, were paid a fortune, made a fortune, so they get to sort of 45 or 50. And I wouldn't say they've had enough, but they're quite happy to move on. Like Steve Grounds has got a deli somewhere in the West Country, um, and they could do that sort of thing. Furthermore, they looked at you, they looked at me, they looked at Dave Dye and Chanel, our friends, and I know this sounds conceited, but we were quite good. We'd done some good work, so they could see that... Mm. Not their time was up by any means, but they didn't mind sort of moving over a bit and letting us do it. Now, the trouble with our generation is, you know, I, I've done better financially than, than I had any right to do. You know, my, my ambition, as you know, was to be a black cab driver. That was the zenith of my ambitions before I discovered an ad agency. So I've done all right, but I haven't done, none of us have, apart from those who've opened their own agencies. or we, We've done perfectly well. I've got a nice house. I'm very grateful. But we didn't make that kind of money that we could move over at 45 or 50. Furthermore, we look at the generation behind us, and there are exceptions, of course, there are, and there always will be. But the advertising isn't very good. They haven't been taught to be copywriters and art, and art directors and given the craft skills that we were. So we're... For those two reasons, financial and creative, we're less willing to move over. So you've got that as well. 
I can't remember what the question was, but all those well, things are true. no, I think, <laughs> and I mean, I think what you're saying makes a, a huge amount of sense. And I think you know they're they're in a, a much harder financial position. Like the idea of getting on the mm. housing market, and the idea that they're not getting married and having kids because they can't afford it and they can't mm. really see it. The idea that that is something that's happening in England in 2021 is crazy and depressing. Yeah. But you can totally see how they're going. Jesus Christ, you know, I'm on 30, 40 grand and that's not going to get me anything. It's definitely not going to get me on the housing ladder. No. And if it doesn't, how, how's the rest of it going to work out? And then there's all these guys who won't move aside. Who They, they look at us yeah. and they, they think we're the generation who, who, who got the cash uh, or, or yeah. got enough cash that we're okay, we got a house. And they're like, yeah, fucking hell. So, I suppose compared to them, um, we looked at the generation that I've just described who really did coin it in. Oh my God, yeah. Comparatively we're like that to them yes uh, so and, and i do understand and with younger people i wanted i was looking forward to fe- feeling like an old git that i was really dull and i was really boring and these exciting young people they the generation just below us as, as has been said many many times <sighs> they're quite sensible they're quite risk averse uh, and, and that's reflected in their work. And, and, and I've mentored a lot of them in in, uh, in uh, advertising places and courses I've gone down. Because I always think you, you should give something back. I, I try to give something back to the, to the industry that gave me absolutely everything. Uh, and they are quite, I wouldn't say dull, that's the wrong word, but quite sensible. And, and the work isn't brilliant. Sometimes it is. But, you know, you, you want to think, say you're a footballer and you were you were brilliant once, but, of course, you've slowed down, you're 35, you, you can't run like you used to. And, you know, there, there are younger players in the squad who are much better than you. It's the natural scheme of things to to move over, but they're not exciting us. They, they, they're, they're not. But um, is, is that... I'm going back to what we were saying before. If you had a Paul Arden out there right now or even a mark denton someone who's interesting and sticks out and isn't willing to just take the status quo and wants to you know shake things up do you think they'd have an even harder time now getting you know getting finding a place in advertising than than people used to in those days you know back in the day it was graham fink throwing um pot plants through the window and obviously that doesn't happen now and i'm not suggesting anyone does you know stuff that makes people feel super uncomfortable or, or whatever the things are what i'm saying is if no, if if we're feeling, oh God, I, I can't do the standout thing, otherwise I won't get a gig next week. Mm. They're probably not going. Fuck it, I'm going to come in. I'm going to be dressed in orange with my name on the back of my shirt, and I'm like, hey, everybody, I'm fucking Paul yeah. Arden. You know that the, yeah. the, the 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 circumstances don't seem to call for that person. They don't. What I think happened, <laughs> sort of, this is the theory I've got based on nothing, is that years ago, at the time you're talking about, there was them and there was us. Now, us, we, we worked in advertising, we might work in film, might be writers, directors, art directors, actors, those sort of people. And we could have been brought up on a council estate in Kilburn or we could have been brought up in Downton Abbey. We were still essentially the same sort of people. And we were the sort of people that pitched up in advertising, the sort of flotsam and jetsam, uh, who could, who could, I could barely function anywhere else, but, um, and there were many others like me. Uh, and then there was them, and they might have lived in Chislehurst or Pinner, and they played golf and polished the car on a Sunday, and they worked at Nat West, and, and they joined the Rotary Club or the Freemasons, 
and we coexisted quite happily. They were in their world and we were in ours. And then one day, I think in the 90s, they decided they wanted to live in our world. And they came stomping into, like Notting Hill was the first place that they went and they lived in East Linton. And, and then it was Kensal Rise and Queen's Park where I was brought up. And it was, they've worked their way into advertising. <laughs> They're sort of blander and I don't know. That's just the way it seems to be. And they brought their attitudes with them. Uh, some things did need to change. You know, there, there, there was a culture that um, if you put me back there now, I probably don't remember it. And I, But if I saw the way things were with women and with drugs and drink, I'd probably go, oh, my God, Jesus. Uh, but on the other hand, it has become, I mean, Soho is a prime example when you come over here. You'll see it. it it's a sort of bland and sanitised and I blame them because I want to send them all back to Northwood, Pinner, Cheam, Chislehurst, and and reclaim where re- reclaim our world and our industry. But I, I can't see that ever happening. But it even more directly of that, and I think it happened at that time. And this isn't to blame every planner or strategist, as they're mm. often called. I think it happened in the early two thousands where a lot of planners and strategists, I remember there was a whole conversation on Scamp's blog about it, about them being in the edit room, in the edit to yes. oversee whether they felt it was strategically right. And I feel like the strategy people, and this isn't, this is a massive generalization, are they're a little bit more right brain, left brain. Right, yeah. Which, the, right, yeah. Sensible one, yeah. Because, sensible. Yeah, yeah, because their life is based on research and data and things like mm-hmm. that and, and having the information. And, and and again, I know loads of really nice planners and I'm not in any way slagging it off as a discipline. But what I'm saying is if you get a greater primacy and then you add it to the data-driven world of Google Book and everything else that's going on in terms of how advertising is put out there and there's a lot of data and a lot of, please, can we be safe about this decision? We don't want to make a decision that's out there and it might be wrong. You have a situation where those people who might get it 10 out of 10, three, three times, and then, you know, three out of 10, a few times, and you're willing to put up with the, the possibility of it going wrong to have it go incredibly right. Yes. Now it's like, let's make sure everything is around six or seven out of 10 and yeah. not try for 10 and let's never have a three. Yeah, that's definitely the case. I mean, I was very fortunate at BMP, the home of planning, uh, and that you had brilliant planners, you know, like that Paul Feldwick, it was it was it was like an old university professor when he was in his thirties, and they were more eccentric than the creatives. But again, like that uh, girl, woman I was describing, uh, that they, they, they can they can really ruin things. I mean, I suppose you could boil it down to that we regard advertising as an art, and they regard it as a science, and. Yeah, if if they're given, as you say, primacy, it's um, it's never going to be good for the work. Yet a really good planner is almost like a really good therapist, a therapist mm. you know who can really help you. Uh, if you're, how have I got into uh, being mad? But they say if you get a bad one, um, <laughs> they'll do more harm than good. You know, they'll send you in completely in the wrong direction. And planners can be a little bit like that. And also a lot of them um, that. Again, BMP, they tell you stuff you didn't know. No, like yes. Rory Sutherland. You go, oh, yeah. you know, I never thought of that. Never thought of it like that. But you know, uh, I've come across too many planners who go, so basically, with this lager, 
we're talking to young men who like beer. You know, they go out on a Friday night and before you know it, you're talking about Ben uh, and you're sort of stating the obvious. And, and again, by creating something like Ben, they're sort of building up their, building up their role. It should be a lot simpler than it is. Yes, it, th- that's a thought that occurs to me very, very many times. But the problem is, I think we're now in a world where you can measure quantity and it's harder to measure quality. So when you see a 48-slide deck, you, the client thinks, oh, I got value for money because I yes. can see you've put chart after chart and this must have taken ages. And therefore, the money I paid you, I can see where it went. Whereas if someone gives you, uh, uh, if someone writes, just do it in 10 seconds, you go, fucking hell, what, what am I paying you to do that for? So I feel like there's a quantity of quality thing that makes people also, you, you can't take refuge in quantity. You go, if I've done or shown people 15 yeah. things, then that's better than showing them one really good thing. Um, because... Uh, I- I mean, I even find that when I'm invoicing people, I shouldn't tell people. I always thought, oh, I can't, I can't charge them. Even though I've done a really good job mm. for a very good price, I think, yeah, but I haven't actually, you know, like if you sold them a sofa or a car, you think, yeah. well, that's fair enough, I'll have, I'll have that money. I haven't really given them anything. Uh, and what I always do, I, I always charge by the job like a builder. Because again, if I come up with it in five seconds, I can't charge them for five seconds. But on the other hand, if I'm a bit shit that day and haven't really done what they wanted, I can't keep charging them more days because I wasn't very good. So the onus is on me is to get it right and get it right quickly. And it, well, yeah. and it does seem to work. I've, I've, done, I've done gigs where I've, I've knocked out, out in a day and they're like, wow, this is amazing. We don't need you for the next two days. I'm oh. like, oh, I've cost myself a couple yeah. of... Okay, fine. <laughs> that happened to me. I, I don't mind me. That happened to me at VCCP. They got me into work on Nationwide, and it was all very, um, I mean, very nice. And the money was fine, and they were really nice. And they said, right, we're we're booking you in for um, two weeks, two five days, so ten days, and then two days the following, the third week, just to make sure everything's right. And, and I worked hard. And I did it well. Uh, and after eight of my days, they said, this is absolutely brilliant. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, we don't need you anymore. Exactly the same. So I lost a third of my money. And I, yeah. I, thought, I thought, look, you booked me for 12 days. Find, there'll be something. Find me something else to do, you know. But they didn't. And I and, thought that was yeah, mean. And it, and it encourages you then to perhaps hold some things yes. back and not give your, your top shit the first day. Which is, <laughs> which which is, is sort of wrong. That's what they make you do. <laughs> you know, you just you just think you've booked me for twelve days. I do. I'll finish that. You know, there, there, there'll be something else. But the the problem with decks when you said that um, reminds me of uh, you know again going back to the young people in the college. The first thing they do is you're looking at their work, and they'd say the stra- it would say strategy, yeah. and I'd put my hand over it and go, I don't want to know. Yeah. And they hated it because I used to go, that's cheating, isn't it? You can't go around to every person that's ever going to see your 48 yeah, yeah. and tell them what, it's spo- what they're supposed to think. I want to see if I get it without that. And then there'd be this quite elaborate deck because they'd be quite, you know, good on the laptop. And when you peeled back the deck and actually got, you know, all right, it was a bit like past the parcel where you've got this <laughs> massive pass the parcel and it comes round and you finally open it and there's like a penny chew in there there was a packet of polos or something and that's what it was when you stripped away the deck the idea i'd rather have had uh some better ideas presented on scraps of paper 
you know, and they're, t they're taught things they're not going to do in agencies. They're just not going to be asked to do that. It's the client's job. They, they're inventing products. You're going, just fucking learn to write and draw. But I remember I was at one, and again, it, it was very flattering, and, and the lecturer was very nice. And I said, they've got to get into you know, the core skill. He said, it's all about the idea, isn't it? I'm thinking, well, not really. Like, if everything in life is an idea. If you have an idea to have... Um, a sausage sandwich there is still do you want pork sausages do you want the pork in it do you want brown bread do you want sourdough do you, you know it's the execution you have some lettuce in there everything you ever do is an idea it, it it's it's that's only the the beginning of it and he said very kindly he said um you know when they get to agencies there's they can be turned into a Paul Burke or a Paul Belford and I'm thinking no, they won't. A they haven't no. got the time and they haven't got the skills to turn you into a Belford you know and I think there's, there isn't a huge enthusiasm to become necessarily a Burke or a Belford because, um, you know, when, when I started, when I, when I first got in a placement AMV, I bought the copybook in its previous iteration. Yeah. And I was like, I was starstruck. I went into mm -hmm. AMV's creative department. I was like, oh, my God, four of the people in the copybook are here. in this yeah. building. Oh, my. It was it was mm. OK. This might sound really pathetic to some people and I, I don't give a shit. So in the mid nineties, and I was like, am I, what, am I, and, and Richard Foster's fucking here, and oh my god, yeah, and yeah. David Ab, and so these people were incredible to me, and I, I, I would go away and for fun, or it, it, there was that library at the bottom of Leicester Square which had all the DNAD books. I remember that. On, on I remember that afternoon. I would voluntarily, with my own free time, go and read fucking nineteen seventy two DNAD annuals. Mm -hmm. Because that's what I, it wasn't just maybe this will get me more money. I was genuinely fucking interested, yeah. even in the ads. Why wouldn't you be? If you've chosen to do that for a living, you should be interested in those people. And you were. Oh, but you know. I don't know if now they'd see it as, as I'm not saying out of date, but, um, you know, and, and it's easy for us to say, oh, you should. Because some of the ads well, I'm looking at in 1972 did look a bit out of date. But the yeah, principle it's always behind, the type. Always the type. Always the type. And the fact that the, the, um, the ads yeah. that were double page spreads were slightly out of line. Yeah. And you'd go, oh, that's yeah. crap. But, but, you know, the principles of is it, you know, cutting through and simple and it's got an insight and, um, yeah. you know, all those things that you're trying to kind of learn. And, and I, I wanted to get as much of that as my foundation as possible. I feel like. If you're an art director and you don't know who Paul Belford is, because, you know, his work is not out of date. It's fresh as a fucking daisy, uh, literally everything he does. And he's amazing. And I had the privilege of working under him for a little bit and with him for a little bit um, afterwards as well. And um, He's nice as well, because I'd always always a miserable sod. And I've got to know him in the last few years. And we meet up at this cafe in Islington sometimes. And he's, he's a top boy. You know, yeah. I'd always end up at these AMV like drinks parties and literally start talking to him and still be talking to him two hours later because he's such an interesting guy as well. Yeah. So if you're not, because you know, he did a degree in physics or something. Yeah, he's got like biochemistry or something, yeah. and he got married in a helicopter above Las Vegas. So Paul Belford <laughs> is one of the most interesting people you'll ever meet. Yeah. So mm. what I'm saying is, okay, Paul's Paul's the best art director probably that I know. Dave Dye is also amazing, and, and you know. But what yeah. I'm saying is, if you're an art director and you don't know who these guys are and you don't know, you haven't looked at their work, you are missing out on a gigantic education that will push you forward in terms of your discipline craft. Surely, of course. Of course. I mean, it, it's it's so it. I, I was the same. I knew who everyone was. Uh, um, I was lucky enough to work in traffic and production. Uh, I mean, when I think about it, AMV, I was dispatched and I was in traffic and production so I knew them all and I used to watch what they did and what Richard Foster who we were talking about um it, it's it's a completely different discipline um Richard Foster did the best thing for me because he he said you ever thought of becoming a writer and I went oh god because no. it's not 
that I thought I was thick. I just wasn't that into English literature. I wasn't into Dickens. I found it a bit boring and Shakespeare sort of of its time and Chaucer was Benny Hill from the 14th century. And, I, and he, he said, I, I, I'd never read anything. He goes, no, me neither. So what do you mean me neither? You're Richard Foster. And he said, if you, if you want to learn to write, um, have a look at Roald Dahl. Um, mm. not, not his kids' books. Uh, he, he can write for any audience. Uh, he, he never wastes a word. Uh, and just look at good copy. Look at that because it's a different thing. And weirdly, in the Sunday Times few weeks ago, Jeremy Clarkson, who was always a good writer before he came before he became famous, said, "I always wanted to be an advertising copywriter. It's a brilliant skill. The way they just used to get blah, you know." And so I, I'd start. It is a different. It's a different skill, and those those kids are not being taught. They were so bad that I had to. I wrote this thing called Copy Clinic with just all the things, the difference between antisocial, unsociable and unsocial compared with, <laughs> compared to. Uh, all these things that we learnt at school, that, that they're not being taught. And, and they keep getting rid of older people, so there will be no one in the agencies, if, if, if there are anyway, that can teach them that. And art direction is something, again, talking about Belford, he does that wonderful blog. Oh, yeah. Fantastic. talks about how because you think i like that and i don't know why i like it and he explains it's because yeah. they put the pipe there and, the, and you go oh yeah that's oh. i never thought of that yeah. uh and that's what they need to be shown never mind the idea we all have an idea yeah. it's all <laughs> but, out there for free the idea sorry to use the idea in yeah. a different sense that you would have dave dye's podcasts available to you as a lesson an object lesson and his and the blog posts that he yeah. does to any creative right now for free and you can oh. listen to the best in the business talk and see all their work. Hours. You can listen to Frank Lowe explain how great fucking work happened. You can listen yeah. to Mark Reddy. You can listen to Tim mm. Riley, how it happened. We didn't even have that. That oh. now exists for any advertising creative right now to just yeah. listen to on the bus. Are they all doing it? Is my question. Possibly. No, possibly. I, I don't think those. And there's, there's lots of reasons why. Uh, it's the working class kids aren't really getting in. And because this is not this, this certainly isn't the fault of advertising agencies uh it's the price of property you know they would come down and they, they'd rent some scruffy flat uh for next to nothing what, what you know all all those geordies that trot used to have in his department who did some wonderful work um that's not available to them now you know uh you you need to live near london or have parents who are wealthy enough to support your ambitions and so well, that, that's what I've referred to as the diversity behind the diversity, because you look at surface diversity and go, how many uh, non, non-binary people do we have? How many BAME people do we have? How many women? How many gay people? You know, and you look at all those. But, you know, Jo Ascott, fascinating, who I, I interviewed for my, my podcast at one point, she grew up on a farm in the countryside. So she, as a black person doesn't have necessarily the same experience as someone who grew up in a council mm. flat in Croydon. And that, that is a diversity that you cannot, you cannot see and you cannot measure. So you go, I've got Jo Ascott, but she's got the background, admittedly, of a, of a black woman, but one who mm. grew up in the countryside in a very nice farm. Now, there's some, there's some kid out there, I can't tell. Did he grow up you know, eating uh, shredded wheat or Frosties? Did he grow up uh, having mother's pride bread or was it, you know, brown bread? I don't know. And you've got all those things that feed into who you are as a person, but you can't see them. So how no. do you get the diversity behind the diversity? I, I don't, because people often think it's um, diversity is based on the, the colour of somebody's skin. And it's just not, you know, uh, again, uh, people with darker skin, I mean, it's statenably obvious, but 
you know, the, the, the difference between the, um, the Caribbean community, or yeah. not even the Caribbean community, the people whose parents came over from the... I don't think it's even their parents. It's probably their grandparents came over yeah. the Caribbean. The African community, within the South Asian community, you have Indians, you know, Sikhs, Muslims. Just because somebody, people look similar any more than you're very similar to that Polish bloke you once met because your skin's the same colour as his. Um, again, it's the irony is that advertising used to have a very diverse hiring policy because it wasn't deliberate. They just used to type, take people they liked the look of or like the cut of their jib, and they could come from anywhere and be male, female, black, white. When I first, my first job uh, in, uh, in a crepe department was at, why not? And looking back, it never occurred to me till recently, a beacon of diversity. Um, they, they had, um, you know, a couple of black guys, female teams, male, female teams, older people as well. Uh, no one, they were there because they were, you know, professional writers and art directors. That's all it was. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and now that I think those people, <laughs> them, the ones who should be playing golf in Pinner, have sort of imposed, oh, hey, we better get, they feel guilty. So we, be, you know, they deliberately impose, not necessarily quotas, but instead of just letting it happen, uh, I think the important thing is to get into the schools early because someone came around to my school. I didn't, you know, I knew, I knew who Saatchi and Saatchi were and I realised that somebody must write those ads on the telly. But that's all I knew. Uh, so I, I think we just have to get a diverse, a more diverse pool of people just by going out there early and saying, look, this thing is available to you. Uh, do you want to consider it? And they might not want to, or they might um, be no good at it. Most people probably would be no good at it, but they, they need to be given a chance. Um, okay, well, so here's, here's my next, here's my next uh, slightly devil's advocate provocative thing that I want to say about, about people who are older. Here's, here's a suggestion. There's a sort of truism that you kind of, you stop getting, you stop growing up at some point. And often for people, it's in their teens where you go, my favorite music is the music I listened to when I was 15 or 16. Mm. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm still of a certain mindset um, that I, and inside, here's an insight for anyone who's younger feeling this, you'll still feel young when you're older. You, you don't go, wow, I'm 40 something. I will now do all these boring things. You're younger. So what, yeah, I, what, I wouldn't believe that till it happened to me. I know. And so what, <laughs> but what, what I was interested in, in kind of saying is, um, so uh, I was listening to another podcast where Walter Isaacson, who wrote that book about Steve Jobs recently, he was saying, he said, what, what's the thing that, that links all these incredible creative people together? And he said, it's the ones who can retain their wonder years. It's the ones who, when they're old, they're still going, why is the sky blue? Why is the blah, blah, blah? And you start, you keep the curiosity going. Mm. Do you think there's something to be said for the fact that the older you get, there is an inevitability of you, do, of you actually getting to some degree stuck in your ways about your taste and your culture? I think um, there is an element of that because you will have seen, tried and experienced a lot of things and you realise, I mean, for instance, with clothes, I know not necessarily what suits me, but I know what doesn't, so I don't bother with it. On the other hand, I think it depends what you were like in the first place. And I'm sorry to say, a lot of the creatives I've met over the years are quite fucking dull and suburban. (laughs) They get get to about 35 and go... um, yeah, they, they sort of move out, oh, you know, and uh, start calling the, their wife the missus and, oh, I don't know, start going to Sainsbury's home base. I'm not saying you shouldn't do that, but I, I actually found account men more interesting. They're, they're the ones who'd be more likely to live more centrally and do more things and go to the theatre. I was quite surprised 
Um, I think the creatives are on it when they're sort of 23, 24. I'm talking about our generation, but a lot of them are... We're a bit dull. Uh, <laughs> but, and, but what and, about this? What about this maintaining your... Because I, I, I wonder... Well, if... no, you have to. I mean, Tony Cox, who we mentioned, who's 77 now. I mean, he's a great hero of mine. You know, presided over BNP in the glory years of the 90s. And he was saying the other day, last time I was... Not the other day, um, the, the last time I saw him. He's going, he loves the tube because he gets on at Clapham Common. He said, every, every time I get out at Oxford Circus or... um. London Bridge. Oh, wow! Look at the, where am I? Whoa. And um, he said, "I'm still amazed that you, you just walk down an escalator, get on this tube thing, and go, oh, where am I?" And I just think that's the sort of sense of wonder. And yes. these things are available to you. You know, older people um, they still go to museums. They still watch the stuff on Netflix. It's still available to them. Well, that and, that was going to lead into what I was going to say about possibly being, I wonder if there's a stigma uh, of perspective from the younger to the older generation that we don't understand, you know, all the advances that have happened in the last 10 years of whether you're on Instagram stories or Snap or whatever, do they, do they think, fuck off granddad, you grew grew up without even a mobile phone. You don't know what we're really talking about here. They've got a point, but we've only got to be shown it. Uh, it, For instance, um, say you're a professor of oncology um, you know, when you think of inventors and professors and genuine innovative people, they usually got white hair and they're in their sixties. And and you, the 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 professor in in medicine is may have invented and is certainly able to understand the latest advances in uh, his field technologically. And I've often found that with stuff on the computer that I think is really hard. And someone will go, yeah, you just press that and do. Was well, that it? Yeah, that's fine. You know, I think you only have to be shown. It's not a, It's not like being an athlete where you physically can't run as fast as you could when you were 25. Uh, well, I, I 100% believe what you're saying. And I, I, I feel like I felt perhaps even more in the, say, 2007 era that there was a secret source. There was a mysterious digital that unless you were of a certain age, you could possibly know it. Then I realised I have a blog and a podcast and i'm on twitter and and i've seen these ads and actually there is no mystery and i've worked i worked at facebook for six months a couple of years ago and i could see really what's happening behind the curtain i could see the the way that the most successful social media company in the world did what it did and there was no secret source there was no special thing and i think that there's a thing where where people uh, you know who are a little bit older might go well a banner ad is just a poster that happens to be on tv or pre-roll it's just a TV ad that happens to be before a YouTube hmm. clip. So make sure those first five seconds work well because everyone's pressing skip button, skip button, skip, yeah. skip button. But the dynamics are not actually very different from no. make sure your ad looks interesting so people don't go and make a cup of tea during the break. But yeah, you first line of your copy. Get them in, there, get the headline. Yeah. Is there a feeling, though, that the app, there's these intricacies, there's some web beneath the web that if you're 30, you know about when you think that someone who's 50 doesn't know about it, even though I've been immersed in you know, daily web shit of podcasts and all that sort of stuff for, you know, 10, 15 years now. But that's the other reason why it's important to have older people, even if it's three days a week. Because uh, what I will say, having slagged them all off about those young people that I was mentoring, is they did show me an awful lot of stuff I didn't know, which was quite simple and straightforward. I remember them showing me Bumble or whatever that dating app is. Yeah. You know, I didn't really know how it worked. Uh, and again, I think the important thing 
just like real life is if you have people in their 50s in the creative department alongside people in their tw- of all ages uh they will learn off you but more importantly you will learn off them you know they'll get you into some music you didn't know about or just a program that you haven't seen and and that was always the great thing about creative departments that exchange of information that was because we were curious and and i think uh, i don't think i've lost my curiosity and all the people that we know that we were talking about belford and dave die and people oh, i miss them all so much but i'll you know be seeing them all again soon um you know, when, I, when I've met up, I met up with Phil Cockrell quite recently. We, we just had a chat about the things that we like, that you like, that I like. Uh, and he and others like him, we haven't lost that curiosity. Uh, and, and we'd add to that curiosity uh, if we were exposed, exposed, uh, if we were working with um, younger people all the time. It would do yeah. us good. It would do I, them good. I, on yeah. that subject, I remember when I joined AMV in the, in the late 90s, it was funny because even people who weren't actually that much older than us, people like Steve Hudson and Gary Martin, would they'd almost want to, and Paul Brigginshaw, like feast on our the, the young stuff that we knew. Yes, I would. Oh, what are you into? What do you like? Oh, what do you into? And I could, I could yeah. feel like them sort of, obviously you don't lose it when they tell you as well, but they're like, oh, what's cool? What's different? Oh, what's interesting? Mm. And I felt like that was definitely the, the case as well. My, my situation, though, just to look at the other side of it, though, is I feel... I wonder if this is a more universal thing than, than just me, but I think like there's the, the top of the pops dynamic. When you're young, you sit in front of the top of the pops and your dad is on the, on the chair behind yeah. you going, fucking no, it all sounds the same. Gradually, do you move backwards to your dad's chair and now I sit there and look at the music that's out now and go, fucking no, it all sounds the same. Is yeah. that because I went through the same thing my dad went through or does it all sound the same right now? Um. I think some of it does sound the same. Uh, again, it's the boring people. I think the grim corporate takeover of music started with the Spice Girls. It was such an obvious, you know, manufactured. There's always been manufactured bands, but it just seems so obvious this time. And, and then Boys Own and Westlife and things like that. But the other thing is, is you have genuinely seen it before. You you, you might listen to some hip hop and you think, oh, that's no. James Brown baseline of other, but but back in the seventies when it was Donny Osmond, my my mum, my sister came in with Donny Osmond's brand new single the day it came out. This is going back to the seventies, and it was called the Twelfth of Never. She sticks it on the record player. My mum starts singing along with it, <laughs> and she goes, oh, she goes, what? what? Oh, it's an old one, Johnny Mathis, wasn't it? Oh, she's oh, it's bloody old. <laughs> so there is an element of that that you have seen it before, but I think. I think you you should become your dad a little bit, you know. It's natural, you know, because you have seen it before. Uh, But but music is a lot of it is done on computer, and you can hear it. You know, it does. It is, and I think I've seen I've seen articles saying that it genuinely is working in a smaller range than it used to, so things do tend to sound more similar to each other. Can I just ask you in a in an interesting way because I I kind of know the answer to this, but only because of something that's happened recently. Do you know what's number one right now? No, no idea. Okay, because I, I believe it's uh, Lil Nas X's Montero thing. But Ed, yeah, anyway. I, I was properly obsessed. <laughs> you, you used to. I was obsessed. Oh Someone could give me their date of birth. Yes, the Guinness Book of Singles. And I would singles. tell them their number one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I, I could do that. As well. I was obsessed with the Guinness Book of Appreciate Singles. Yeah, me too. Twelve or thirteen, me too. and I read every, like what's number one? Oh my god, what's number? So um, I was. But there's a point where it stopped being as relevant to me. And I still look at Billboard every week or two. And I still look at the English charts every now and again. But I still go, 
I don't know who the fuck that is. I don't is. know who the fuck that is. I mean, I could, do, I could do all the Christmas number ones. I could tell you what they were from about 1963. Right, there. but back to the... I think with me, it, I, I was an obsessive. I've still got them all, about 5,500 of them. Uh, Seven-inch singles. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And once the seven-inch single, I know it's come back a little bit, the vinyl, was phased out, we sort of lost interest in the charts. It didn't become as important. And also, it was pretty much all we had. You had Top of the Pops and Radio 1 if you wanted to hear music. Whereas now, you can, you know, and it's staying obvious, but anything you want, any time you like. So it's it sort of lost its value. You remember yeah. when there was, like a, there was a song out and you didn't know where to hear it, if it was in America? Yeah. And your friend, had heard, you heard it once on the radio. You're like, what, what was that song? Where can I get it? Yeah. And you couldn't go to a record shop and get it because it may not have been on import. Or you couldn't like go around your friend's house or you'd have to listen to the radio and hope it came on again. That is a very I mean, dynamic I mean, from everything's available 24 hours a day. I mean, but this has happened twice. Uh, two what, people who are no longer with us is John Webster and Frank Budgen. And Frank used to do it to them all the time. Because he knew I knew about music, he'd come and go, what's that record? You know... There's a bloke was in the 60s. And Frank was quite shy, so it must have took him quite a lot. Fucking hell, I've no what this is. And again, we used to have to send out for them, you know? And yeah, it, it's, it is very different. And what we would have given to be able to access all that music. Oh, my God. But I, I think it makes it less special. I genuinely no, I think it makes it less special and you don't appreciate it as much. So when you, I, I'll go through some music and go, yeah, fine, done it, gone, and I'll go back. But in the past, you go, I can only afford one album this month. I'm going to rinse yes. it. And then track number seven. And I'm going to listen to it. I'm going to yeah. listen, listen to it until my, you know, because I value for money and there we go. And now it's, it's so disposable that it's, it's in, in one ear out the other. Even in a car. You'd have made a mixtape, and because it was on cassette, yeah. I mean, yes, you could fast forward and rewind it, but it wasn't very precise. You tend to listen to the whole lot. Yeah. Now I've got Spotify in the car. Oh, that, that, and I found myself hitting the button five times in ten seconds. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, I've got a playlist of about six hundred songs on a my favorite stuff playlist, and I, and yeah. that and it comes up on shuffle because I'm like, I, I need to have some degree of I'm, it's not what because right. I would default to Led Zeppelin very quickly. And if I'm, if I'm going to do that, I need something that gives me a mix and gives me a what's, what's new or what's different. But I think what's happened with me, and I think maybe with you and with others, and this is the reason um, ageism needs to be addressed, is I think we have a U-shaped career. We're really into it, it being yeah. everything, curiosity, uh, when we're younger. And then um, very often you get into your 30s or forty. And family, marriage, family, chip marriage, yes. and, and and quite rightly, it'd be bad if it wasn't. Your um, focus is on that, and then once you're no longer responsible for your children, they're older, they might have gone to university. You get it all back again, particularly now mm. when it's so easy accessed, and that's the trouble with um, people fail to take that into consideration when women come back into the workplace after maternity leave. Yeah, they're, I've seen it so many times. They're brilliant, and they, but they. They're not as interested as neither should they be. You know, what sort of person would uh, ha- a baby would have no effect on them? So, yeah. so they're, they're promoting people who are the, the, the most senior people in the agency, male or female, are that age, the ones who are at the bottom of the U. <laughs> so, well, that's, that's actually the happiness curve as well. There's, there's research yeah. that says you're happier and happier and happier, and you're, you're least happy in your sort of mid, uh, early 40s, mid 40s. Yes. And then it goes right back up again, and you become happy, happier and happier as you 
get towards yeah. your death. And assuming I, uh, you know, I don't get horribly ill and infirm, that's happened to me. It really has. Um, and that sounds like I hated every second of when my children were small. I did. It's all relative. It's all relative. It, and it was a different thing. It, it was happiness through them. It wasn't. It wasn't personal sort of creative happiness that you get from just doing the things you like to do, watching the things, listening to the music, going to the films. Uh, and, and so again, that 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 isn't being tapped into. The people in their fifties who've got the time to really uh, absorb things that would be very useful. Uh, in the context of creative advertising, madness, madness! I tell well, you. Know. One, one, one more point that it, it, it's, it goes into the logic of having older people do advertising, but still never seems to hold water. That the the vast majority of disposable income is in the hands of people over fifty, um, yes. and all the cars are bought by people. New cars yeah. are bought by people over fifty. Blah blah blah. So there's a logic to go. Advertising agencies should lean and be actually far more, you know, older person centric. And they currently are. And it's kind of weird that they're not. And I'm wondering if even though that logic exists and it makes a lot of sense, why advertising is always still such a young person's leaning industry. It's re- it's, it is very strange because there was criticism of AMV for that, um, that blood ad they did about um, period. Right colour, yeah. Yeah, that uh, should have been directed by a woman because a woman understands that. Well, not getting into the rights and wrongs of that, by the same token, well, only a 50-year-old would be interested in that mortgage or that car. Or thing. So shouldn't you have a 50-year-old writing the ads because he or she would really understand it? Uh, so there's certainly an element of that. You know, people in their 50s have bought cars, taken out mortgages, so they'll know more. I mean, I remember working on Mercedes and, and they were aiming the A-class at younger people. And you think, this car's £24,000. What are you doing? You know, <laughs> young people aren't going to buy it. I mean, the devil's advocate in me would say that we all aspire. You know, if someone said you could look 20 years younger than you do now in an instant, of course I'd take that. So we all aspire to be to be younger than we are after a certain age. So I suppose that's why they're doing it. But it does seem a bit silly because very often, you, you know, uh, we've all seen ads the other way around where it, it's trying to be cool and hip yes. and maybe have a rapper. And you know that a, someone in their forties has probably written that by the same token, you can often tell that something aimed at 50 year olds has been written by somebody in their twenties and they just don't get it, you know? So again, you, you just need a spread of people. Uh, they're equally important. All business, particularly advertising needs young people and fresh infusions of talent. But by the same token, and in every other industry, you've got them. You know, in, you, you watch any movie, say it's about a firm of architects, and there's always the bloke with the, um, he's about 60 maybe, and he's, he's quite cool. He's got the black polo neck sweater and, gla- you know, the, the, the trendy German glasses. And he, he set up the practice and he's the wise guy. Or, or, or the senior lawyer who set up advertising. <coughs> none of them people, and, and, and they're vital. And we need to get them back. Uh, and the only way I think they'll do it is by offering them two days a week. But as long as you've got people who feel threatened by that, even though they think the older person is really, really nice and really, really good and they think the world of them, but just don't want them around because they remember them as juniors, I think I think that's the biggest problem we need to... I mean, they're trying to do it a little bit with women. You know, uh, lovely Melissa uh, Robertson, uh, Dark Horses, is trying to do something about them, you know, 
understanding women in the workplace with the menopause. That's fine, but that's only half of us. You know, there hasn't been a similar attempt to understand and attract men. Uh, well, difficult. I, think, I mean, uh, it, yeah. So, so a lot of the logical things that I've, I've, I've mentioned, or we've both mentioned over the last uh, hour, I think they're all out there. And the idea of and there was a time when when we would hire people to do uh, uh, localization when we were at Media Arts Lab. And, and it was difficult to get younger people because, you know, when they're trying to make their career, you're never going to win awards for localization. Therefore, no. even though you're working on Apple and that's good, you're not doing the kind of ads that will get you to the next stage of your career. And it took years. And my boss in America just had this idea at one point. He said, why do we not hire the older people who are still really good creatives who aren't that bothered about building their career anymore, no. but would be very happy to do that kind of work and do it really well. And I was like, fuck me, that is a brilliant, brilliant idea. And there are certain jobs I feel like where you go, well, this is 100% suits an older creative who's not sitting there going, fuck, elbowing people out the way going, I'm going to get a creative circle bronze for this, fuck you all. Mm, mm. It's, but, but you need that at the start of your career. You need to build it. And you need to look back and look, look at the awards I won, put it on your website when you're later on. But if you're 55 and someone goes, I need you to make sure this is properly shit hot, really well done for this market or that market. And I need you to apply your skills and your intelligence to it and blah, blah, blah. And you'll do it. And you go, great. And I don't need you to pay me the superstar wages or you can like you're mm. saying do it for two or three days yeah. a week or you, do, you do different jobs for two or three days a week we do a good job yeah. and and there there are things that i think could really really benefit in that way but but it's whether advertising is willing to take a look at itself and oddly ironically do something different to be more effective because i feel like weirdly as an industry we are reticent to make those changes no we absolutely are i mean hats off to um karma rama because there's two people i know they're good friends of mine uh, Eddie Robinson, who I went to school with, um, he's there. He's older, and 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 he's there. And Pete Matthews, who was a CDP in the seventies, is probably turns but a very young, uh, sort of curious, very funny, very talented septuagenarian. He's there as well. At least I hope they still are. <laughs> they were the last time I looked. So, and, and again, I don't think they're doing. I know Pete isn't doing the most glamorous sort of uh, high-profile TV that he would have done at Colletts, but. He's still doing. He's doing what you've described, and and I think um, agents. And then now and again, they, you know, that they can look over the younger people's shoulders. And oh, I don't know. Uh, the, the the skills aren't in the agencies. Uh, everyone says it. Hecate's just uh, had a thing about it now, just saying the skills aren't there. And that thing will always haunt me. The agencies will turn you into a Paul Burke or a Paul Belford, and they won't. <laughs> <laughs> well. Um... Yeah, I think we, we covered we covered the ages and plus a lot of things on the side there, which I think is what yeah. I was hoping for from a conversation with you, and I got it exactly right. So enormous thanks for that. Um, we can stay on and have another little chat after I say goodbye, and we can we can bid, bid farewell to anyone listening to this. Uh, I hope you enjoyed the chat, and it was great. Thanks, Paul. Oh, yeah, always lovely to talk to you, and uh, hello, everyone. <laughs> See you all soon. <laughs> See you all soon. Bye.